Let's do that again and let's sigh our way out of it. Deep breath in. And sigh. What a nice sound to start with. That state of centered balance in our bodies, resting fully present in this place. So in June, I had the opportunity to go to the Unity People's Conference, and while I was there, I heard a speaker. I had plans for my whole day. He was the keynote speaker, and he messed up my whole schedule. (laughs) I listened to him speak in the morning and was inspired to follow his uh, teaching schedule for the afternoon, so I spent the full day with him. And, um, And so... I have this wonderful sheet of paper and I could tell you about all the awards he's won. I could tell you about the over 100 cultures he's worked with around the world. I could tell you about the impact of his work, um, about the fact that he helps people resolve wars. I could tell you many things. But what I feel called to tell you is this. There are many ways of listening to a speaker. There are people who speak words and speak to your mind, and there are people who, like me, tend to speak with their bodies and give you an idea of what the emphasis is when they're speaking. And then there are people who speak through the subtle field of energy, who open their heart and speak so authentically from who they are that they touch us on all the levels of who we are on our mental level, on our spiritual level, on our physical level, and in the deep spirit, the deep essence of who we are. And that has been my experience with this speaker. So I want to invite you, as you are fully present in this room, to open and receive on all levels what is being offered to us today as we welcome our speaker, Dr. Abdullah. So, good morning. morning. That was pretty good, but we won't repeat. Okay. Um, One of the things that's that's, uh, interesting, uh, this morning, um, in the morning service, uh, uh, I don't know what, I don't even remember what was being sung, but it touched Dr. Ariana and, and she started crying. And she says, I'm really glad that I brought my scarf. I used that. And I'm glad I brought my handkerchief after that last song. Um, Very beautiful. Um, The prior song was, I am the light of the soul. And I am. Now, I try to remember that all the time. And I'm getting better and better at that. We sing songs like that in buildings like this all around this country right now. And then we walk out the building, drive out the parking lot, and we start acting a different way. And what I would like to do is get us to the point where our inness here and our outness there match each other where I am actually remembering that I am the light of the soul as I'm going about my day, as I'm walking down the street, as I am um, 
uh, connecting with others as I'm getting a telephone call, as I'm feeling hassled and, and you know, there's traffic in the way, etc. Um, I was um, going to speak at a church um, some years ago, and this is so many years ago that um, there was no such thing as Google Maps. So I had a paper map in my hand, and I was driving, and I was driving slower than the, than the traffic normally goes. And um, I could see there was someone behind me, and I could see that they wanted to pass, but I was looking for where I was going. So when the road opened up and the driver had the opportunity to pass me, she passes me, and she gives me the look. And you all know what the look is, you know. You jerk, you're in my way, get out of the way, and she zooms past me. I didn't think anything of it. So I wound up getting to the church, and I parked. And I went up to the front door of the church, where there was an official greeter to the church. Yeah, guess who? <laughs> and she's, oh, I'm so sorry for giving you the look, but you were making me late. You were making me late to greet you. <laughs> so no matter what we do, and no matter who we are, we're, we're always in this state of we're about to greet someone. I have a friend who says that she drives down the street um, in such a way that uh, everyone and all the cars around her are someone she knows by their first name. If you act that way, the names that you will call them will be different if, they're, if their driving is less than fully attentive. The forgiveness that you're willing to show them will be different than if somebody who's just an anonymous and you can flip them off and you can yell something out the window or honk your horn. So, so the question, this isn't just like, like nice etiquette for, um, uh, for, for you driving down the street or you working with your coworkers. This is really fundamental stuff. The question is, how are we going to act in this society? Because all of your acts, all of your individual acts, makes up our society. So whether we make eye contact with someone or not, whether we speak to someone or not, whether we treat someone different because of the way they look or what they believe, creates a society that's based on inclusivity or exclusivity. Inclusivity being, we are one. Everybody in the room gets that until you walk out the door and you start acting like, like, they're, like someone's separate. So the um, uh, name of my book is Creating a World that Works for All. And I want to read to you um, a passage um, by a um, woman in India who, if you are not familiar with her, you really should... should um, uh, read some of her, her writings. And she's talking about me. And she's talking about you. And she's talking about how we are with each other. 
She says, your negative feeling about whatever, somebody or something, has little to do with the other person. It emerges from the discontent with the reality of your own life. The negative feeling is not a feeling directed toward others. It is a feeling directed against yourself. The feeling arises when you are not reconciled to the fact of what you are. One of the things that we just spent the past couple of days talking about was worldview and how we're changing our worldview. And we have to change our worldview if we're going to survive on this planet. When I see a situation like Charlottesville, it's very different. What I see may be very different from what you see. In Portland, we line up on one side or the other. You're either, you know, for the side of the the uh, the white supremacists, or the ACLU is supporting the white supremacists, or you're you know you're the anti-fascist and you're on this side. And what I see on both sides, on both sides, are people who are not reconciled to who and what they are. Because if they were, they wouldn't be there. If they were reconciled to who and what they are, they would be out somewhere making the new society, not protesting the old one. They would be making the new society and making it in such a way that it is inclusive of all. What, uh, what we would see is damaged human beings, and we, out of our compassion, would be alleviating their damage. So, um, as Reverend Ariana said, I, I've been around the world more times than I can count. Um, first time you go around the world, it's like, hey, I've been around the world. Second time, I've been around the world twice. Somewhere around the 10th or 11th time is, oh, shit, i got to go around the world again. <laughs> and, um, but some of the most fundamental, and, and, and I've been to many, many, many different cultures, but some of the most fundamental work that I do is in cultures right here in this country Cultures of people who don't talk to each other, who don't even recognize that the other is part of their society. <clears throat> so um, uh, in some of the consulting work that I do, I, I uh, most recently uh, was down in a town in the southern part of the state of Oregon. I can't name the town because there's still lawsuits Flying around that I want, I don't want to, to impact. Um, but this the, this town had a work crew, a regular blue collar work crew that you know puts asphalt down and hangs our signs and things like that. They were they were 100% white, and an Hispanic guy comes on the workforce, and being the good old boys that they are. They welcome him into the workforce the way they welcome each other by calling him a bunch of names and and patting him on the back and he was um, 
uh, he joined right in with them. He called them a bunch of names back, and they all went out and had beer together. You know, so um, a year of this backslapping, name calling, let's work together uh, was going on, and for some reason, <clears throat> he didn't get. Uh, he was a, he was a, uh, considered a temporary worker. After a year, he was he was not given a permanent position. So he said, okay, so he left the, uh, left the office, walks to his lawyer's office, they file a lawsuit, they walk to the, the city hall and clean it out. And he has a year's worth of uh, racial and ethnic name-calling to prove that they created this negative and hostile atmosphere for him. And they settled quick because they knew they were under uh, major liability. <clears throat> They were going to fire all the workers, all the ones that were involved in this, this situation. But one of the directors said, I heard about this guy named Sharif. Let's see, if, let's see what he can do with, it, with these guys. So I got called in. And um, to say that the atmosphere was hostile uh, would be, would be uh, underestimating it, understating it. And... They were completely unrepentant. I didn't do anything wrong. We were just playing. And he was playing right along with us. And so uh, before, we, before I, I walked into session, I asked the directors, uh, the city manager and the, the, the director of public works, what's your estimate of success? Of, of how many of them will actually change their minds and change their attitudes and will actually change their behaviors. And they had a very, um, they were both um, in agreement on the estimate. They said, none of them. They are, they, they said, you're, you're basically wasting your time. The city manager says that we should do this, or we're going to do this, but we're going to have to fire these guys. At the end of the four-hour session, 11 out of the 12 had changed their minds and changed their behaviors. And that change has held up over the past year. And so I said something to them that they had never heard before. I said, the feeling arises when you're not reconciled to the fact of what you are. I said, you still think you're in high school. You still think that, um, you know, kind of like uh, name-calling and putting down, etc. you still think that's okay. You're about, th this is your wake-up call. This is time to wake up to the nature of who you can be. These are people, like, again, these are, are, are um, 11 of the 12 were male, and all of them were white. And these are the folks that, that the society says are running the show, and they know they're not running anything. These are the folks that say that society is all about you, and they know that society is not about them. We have a society where everybody in the society feels like they're misfits. Everybody feels that they're in the out group. And what happens when all these out groups come together? It looks like Charlottesville. 
So what we have to do is start looking at new, better, and different ways in which we relate to each other. It's time for all of us to grow up. We have a way of saying that we want to bring change to our world. All of us here want change. And I'll be willing to bet you that 90% of us in this room want change by saying, I want that guy over there to change. I want him to change. And once he changes, once in a while since it's a she, but mostly it's he's, um, once he changes, then the world will be a better place. I'm here to tell you it doesn't work like that. That what we do is work on ourselves. And the way we work on ourselves is by connecting with the others. I want to give you um, um, a couple of stories. Um, I I graduated from Clark University in Massachusetts. uh, And the school is known for geography and psychology, and I got my degree in psychology. And at the time, this is years ago, um, we would do... um, rat experiments, thinking that rats are going to tell us how human beings behave. Um, And uh, in this one experiment, we would um, put two rats in a cage, in a large cage, large enough cage, and you put water and food in the cage with the rats, and the rats will cohabit uh, with each other. If you send a mild electric shock through the cage, the two rats will start to attack each other. All the rat knows is, I'm in pain, and there's another rat. That rat in some way must be causing my pain. From the point of view of of common way, from the point of view of creating a world that works for all, I'm seeing this, this very, very big cage with seven billion rats in it, and we're all attacking each other, and we're not looking at and looking for what is the nature of the electric shock going through the cage? What is the nature of our spiritual emptiness? What is the nature of how do I get fed as a spiritual being? What is the nature of... Our, um, our, our focus in our future, our focus for our children, our focus actually even for ourselves. Without that, without knowing what our, our goal is and our destiny is, and, and without even thinking about that stuff, by watching television, what we wind up doing is making that emptiness larger and larger and larger until you get to the point that, that the emptiness consumes you. Um, there's a statistic. Uh, the UN did uh, some research um, on uh, uh, human-caused deaths. And they looked in three categories. One category they call homicide, and that is when I kill you, and, and uh, someone other than myself. The second category, and they counted how many people around the world die from homicide. And then 
they looked at war when groups of people start killing each other. And then they looked at suicide when a person kills themselves. The suicide number is three times more than the other two combined. We've created a society that's intolerable. Our way out of it isn't this. Our way out of it isn't suicide. Our way out of it is to create a new and better society. And that's the thing that should be occupying our time. That's the thing that you can be talking about at Thanksgiving dinner when everybody is being so polite and nobody's talking about anything of substance because you're afraid of pissing off old Uncle Joe. Everybody's got an Uncle Joe, right? So our challenge is how do we become the people that we were put here to be? I remember... um, uh, in terms of of uh, walking our path, uh, in order to to stop the war in Sri Lanka, and we got the war to a ceasefire in uh, late two thousand one, early two thousand two. Um, but we did this by having these massive peace meditations. I mean, um, a small peace meditation for Sarvodi is a hundred thousand people. Um, the one that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm speaking of now, there were 500,000 people at this peace meditation, all dressed in white, all meditating for peace. Incidentally, we couldn't find one news organization to cover it. Not to CNN. Now, and my job was to try to get them there. Not CNN, not BBC, not the international press, no one. And when I talked to the reporter from the BBC... I said, this is half a million people dressed in white. And he says, do you think there'll be violence? <laughs> and I should have said yes. <laughs> you know, Tamil Tigers are going to bomb us, you know, and then they'd all show up and, and be uh, disappointed. But at this peace meditation, um, I was going around and asking people uh, why they were, uh, why they came. And um, I'm tr- so I'm, I'm, I have two translators, one for Sinhalese, one for Tamil. And we're walking around, and I saw a woman walking out of the temple. And I asked her why she had come to the peace meditation, and she misunderstood my question, which was really cool because the answer she gave was better than if she had understood it. She said, I just came out of the temple to give thanks to all of the people who helped me to get to the peace meditation. She said, I gave thanks to my daughter for making my lunch. I gave thanks to my son-in-law who gave me the 60 rupees, which is like 60 cents, uh, for for the bus to get here. And I gave thanks to my husband who told me not to come. He told me that um, there was going to be violence there. Uh, he told me that um, it was going to uh, too long away from the house. Who was going to fix his dinner? 
And she said, he helped me to understand how important it was for me to get here. This is a major lesson. I talk about this woman a lot because she realized that, the, that her husband was the instrument of her destiny. That, that his opposition helped to define the path that she was to walk. By him saying no, she realized how important yes is. I think about that when I think about our current president. There are people who will, um, um, well, a lot of my friends got very, very depressed after the election. And I wasn't. And I wasn't because I said, this man is the instrument of our destiny. How many people? are awake and aware and paying attention to what's going on in the society because Donald Trump is president now. How many people would be sitting asleep in front of the television set if Hillary Clinton had won? What is the fact that we got a wake-up call, the fact that we have a very powerful wake-up call, means that it's now time for us to take action. And again, the action isn't, I'm going to oppose him. The action is, what do we do together, right now, quickly, to create the society of our dreams, to create the society of, the, um, of inclusivity, to create a society where our goal is not make more money. If that's your goal, you have no goals. If your goal is, I need to get the bigger car, I need to get the second house, then you don't have a goal. If our goal, all of us together, doing what we can do, If our goal is to do that, then we're all on that right path. There is a a man, um, I've written about him, I call him the little man in the wheelchair, I never knew his name, Um, in uh, Sri Lanka outside of the, they have have the, the kind of downtown mall areas, and outside of these malls, there are lines and lines of beggars. And the beggars are in various states of unhealth, um, waving missing limbs at you, showing you sick children, etc. And you have to run this gauntlet of, of, of beggars. And something I noticed some years ago, um, there was one guy, this little guy in a wheelchair, who had a line of people in front of him waiting to give him money. He was severely deformed. Um, it, was, it was really hard to look at him. But he had this, I'd say his face was beautiful. He had this beautiful, radiant smile. And 
when um, he didn't have arms and legs in the right places. And so you took money and you put it in his, in his pocket. And whenever you did that, he would say, bless you. And so, this is, so while all these other people are lining up saying, I need this, I need that, he's sitting in his wheelchair and he's, you, you put the money in his pocket and he says, bless you. So I lined up and I put some money in his pocket. He said, bless you. Um, and when he gets so much money in his pocket, there's an attendant that takes it out and then you start over again. So several times in my visits, I would go downtown, and whenever I go to this particular area, I'd see the little man in the wheelchair, and um, um, I would put some money in his pocket, and I would get a blessing. And um, a, a couple of years went by, and I had, I did, I was still going to Sri Lanka, but I could, I didn't go downtown. So it's been a couple of years before since I saw him. So when I saw him. I didn't even know he spoke English. He says, oh, you're back. And then he said, bless you. I said, oh, I feel so special now. <laughs> he, if you look at just who he is, and if you look at what he can offer society, he has nothing. He, has, he, has, he doesn't even have the arms and legs that we have. But he was able to activate the thing that every single one of us has, and that is the ability to confer blessing. The, con- the ability to pay attention. He looks at you. He acknowledges you. And then he gives you something. Now, all of us can do that. Even if your mouth doesn't move, you still can confer blessing on another, another person. Even if you can't talk to them, even if you think it may be dangerous to approach them, blessing doesn't have a distance marker. It's like blessing only works if you're within 25 feet, you know. Um, you, you can bless that person across the street who is speaking incoherently. You can bless the relative, you know, good old Uncle Joe. You can bless Uncle Joe without Uncle Joe ever knowing about it. And you can bless our attempt at the creation of a new society, another a positive society. I want to end with a quote um, <clears throat> And those of you who have um, uh, been um, with me, I don't know if I can find it. Um, Well, I did the, um, uh, oops, that's not it. Um, I did the quote of, um, I guess I'm not supposed to do that one. Um, it's hiding in my book, so let me do another one. Um, uh, as as you know, I, I think there, there are no books left, right? They're gone. Okay, too bad. <laughs> We're going to take the last book and start auctioning it off, like at a, starting at a hundred dollars, you know. Um, but I. Um, <clears throat> 
Um, I, I have quoted um, from the introduction to my book several times, uh, and the introduction was provided by President Václav Havel uh, when he was president of the Czech Republic. Um, and he talks about, in the first quotes that everybody remembers because I said those on Friday and Saturday, and if you didn't get it then and didn't get it this morning, you're just not going to get it. Um, the, um, he talks about the, our, the, our conditions in our society and perhaps the way out of our problems um, is to find what he calls here um, a, the, the, the common spiritual and moral minimum. What is the, the essence of our own spirituality? And how is that essence carried through all of our religious and wisdom traditions? It doesn't matter what robe you wear, what kind of hat you wear, and whether you're meeting on, on Sundays or Saturdays or Fridays. Okay, I don't know if anybody meets on Thursdays. But, um, uh, but if we can get to this factor of what unites us. Stop paying attention to what divides us. He says, could this be a way to stop the blind perpetual motion dragging us toward hell? Can the persuasive words of the wise be enough to achieve what must be done? Or will it take an unprecedented disaster to provoke this kind of existential revolution? a universal recovery of the human spirit and renewed responsibility for the world. Now, my work, my bet, is that it doesn't take an unprecedented disaster to do this. That we can be smarter than the rats. That in the midst of all of this, even in the midst of me experiencing pain, I can look around and I can say, there's something else going on here, and I'm going to figure out where the switch is to switch off the pain, not just for me, but for all of us, for all humanity, for all beings on this planet. That's what you're doing here. That's what I'm doing here. Let's do it together. So thank you. <laughs>